This is the second of three podcasts presenting three great scenes in cinema. There are countless great scenes in cinema, but I have chosen these specifically because they each possess atomic weight. They are so finely conceived, closely arranged, and precise in their delivery that although they last but a few moments, sometimes even just seconds, they each contain so much more than their physical and temporal spaces. Once examined, their meaning expands exponentially. That expansion can be emotional, cultural or cinematic. This second podcast examines how atomic weight can expand culturally. It is the summer of 1938 and an American couple, Murray and Frances Burnett, have travelled to Vienna to assist Jewish relatives to smuggle assets out of the country that has just been annexed by Nazi Germany. The Burnett's route back to America takes them through southern France. One evening they go to a nightclub where they see a jazz pianist regaling a crowd consisting of native French, Jewish refugees and Nazis. When the Burnett's return home, Murray contacts a fellow writer, Joan Allison, to help him with a stage play he wants to do about what he saw in Europe. The play is never performed, but nonetheless, Warner Brothers snap up the film rights with the aim of turning it into a movie. Why adapt a play that was never performed? At the time, America was not only neutral on the war in Europe, but most Americans were also opposed to intervention. So President Roosevelt recruited the Hollywood studios to produce films that would sway public opinion into accepting engagement was the right thing to do. Which is why Warner's purchased the play and hired in screenwriters Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch to adapt it into Casablanca. Directed by Michael Curtiz, Casablanca was perfect propaganda. But the reason why it is endured is because its themes and delivery are culturally expansive. Until this moment, Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, has come across as an embittered, self-centred character who, in his own words, sticks his neck out for nobody. But this gives us an inkling that he may possess empathy and idealism. Secondly, in terms of music, the film's composer Max Steiner went to great lengths to find just the right German song to segue into the French national anthem. Also note that to sing the song, the Nazis had to commandeer the piano from Sam, played by Dooley Wilson. White supremacists had bullied and removed from the place of work an African-American. Now contrast that with the way one individual gets an entire orchestra to play a song of liberté, égalité et fraternité. That individual is Victor Laszlo, head of the resistance against the Nazis. Played by Paul Henried, he gets the patrons of Rick's club to rise up. Which brings me to the people who are singing. A lot of the support players in the cast were refugees themselves, having fled Europe as fascism spread across the continent. And perhaps no actor in the scene personifies that flight 
more than French actress Madeleine Lebeau. She played Yvonne, Rick's on-again, off-again lover. After the Nazis invaded France in May 1940, Lebeau fled south to neutral Portugal, where, after two months, she secured a visa that permitted her to travel to Chile. But when she docked in Mexico, she discovered her visa was a forgery. It took another two months for her to persuade the Canadian government to grant her a passport, after which she secured entry to the United States. The unproduced play Everybody Comes to Ricks had a scene that replicated the evening the Burnettes had witnessed in southern France. But in writing it, they just might have been influenced by Jean Renoir's film La Grande Illusion. Chances are they did see it because La Grande Illusion was the very first foreign language film to ever receive an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. Set during the First World War and focusing on a group of French POWs, there is a scene where the inmates defiantly strike up a rendition of La Marseillaise. One of the stars of the film was Marcel Dalio, who went on to appear in Casablanca, playing Emile, the croupier at the roulette table in Rick's Casino. Why do I mention Dalio? Because Dalio, a Jewish refugee, was married to Madeleine Lebeau, and they had fled Paris together in June 1940, eventually making it safely to Hollywood in 1942. As time goes by. We're in 1920s London and an author is quickly scribbling down a premise for a story on the back of an envelope. It is a great premise, but it will be over two decades before he gets to use it. The author's name is Graham Greene. It is now 1947 and he has been wandering around Vienna for two weeks trying to meet the deadline for a commission he had accepted to write a story about espionage, racketeering and betrayal. And then Greene remembers the nugget. I paid my last farewell to Harry a week ago when his coffin was lowered into the frozen February ground. So it was with incredulity that I saw him pass by without the slightest sign of recognition amongst a host of strangers on the strand. The third man had started out as a novella, but before it was published, it was turned into a movie directed by Carol Reed, starring Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, Trevor Howard and Alida Valley. Shot mostly on location in Vienna, it fully exploits the city's bombed-out post-war state, where the glory of the Habsburg Empire had been reduced to a few lonely Schönleiterngassen, beautiful lantern alleys. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. It is that sense of nostalgia and melancholy that permeates the story, which is a very strange note to strike when you're making a mystery thriller. But then again, neither Graham Greene nor Carol Reed, nor indeed Orson Welles, could ever leave a strict genre piece alone. Instead, they were compelled to meddle with it and fashion it into something more complex, something with atomic weight. Now, The Third Man was released in September 1949, Principal photography had begun the previous October in Vienna and lasted six weeks before relocating to Shepperton Studios just outside London. There they filmed until March. And all throughout that time, the Cold War was unfolding and meeting its first international crisis, the Berlin Airlift. In the wake of World War II, just like Vienna, Germany had been divided into four zones and the Soviet Union decided to cut off the supply to West Berlin leaving it a vulnerable and isolated beacon of freedom surrounded by communist tyranny. 
If ever there were a time for a piece of film propaganda that could comment on current times, this was it. An American, Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, comes to Vienna at the invitation of an old friend, Harry Lyne, played by Orson Welles. But by the time Holly arrives, Harry is dead, or so it seems. And as the mystery plays out, Holly falls in love with Harry's grieving girlfriend, Anna Schmidt, played by Alida Valley. Anna, a Czech citizen, has been living in the British zone on false papers. Papers arranged by Harry. But with Harry now dead, or at least exposed as a morphine-peddling criminal, Anna is in danger of being repatriated back to the Soviet zone. With the Cold War ramping up and the crisis over Berlin threatening to plunge Europe into fresh conflict, Green was all for making a point with the story. During World War II, Green had served in Sierra Leone with Britain's espionage division, MI6. Green wanted an ending that would reflect the peril of those cut off from Western democracy, isolated and vulnerable and uncertain of their future in the East. Green wanted a finale where Hollywood step in and rescue Anna from certain doom. But amazingly, Carol Reed, and even more incredulously, his producer David Oselznik, overruled him and went for something so downbeat, it is hard to imagine what audiences felt when they first saw it. But the downbeat ending is probably the reason why the film only improves as the years go by. Although Anna knows that Harry was a criminal, she now so despises Holly for having killed him, she walks away not just from him, but also from freedom. We know that by rejecting Holly, she will be sent back to the Soviet zone. And who knows what will become of her there. But no matter what, her decision was caused by a betrayal. So perhaps that is the real meaning of the film. Reed and Selznick were declaring that personal betrayal can have a wider impact. It is the summer of 1989 and Spike Lee's masterpiece Do the Right Thing is playing in theatres across the United States. A lot of critics, media pundits and political commentators are claiming that it fans the flames of racism and, if left unchecked, could incite riots. But clearly, that group are looking at the film from the wrong side of the screen. And besides, we're not in New York. We're in Detroit, Michigan, at the Joe Louis Arena. There, NWA are set to perform their latest leg on their nationwide tour. Throughout this series of podcasts, I've been talking about atomic weight. In Straight Outta Compton, director F. Gary Gray and writers Andrea Berloff and Jonathan Herman provide not just atomic weight, they trace a chain reaction. The first scene is where Dr. Dre, played by Corey Hawkins, teaches Easy E, played by Jason Mitchell, how to rap. Cruising down the street in my six fault. Shit. <laughs> what the fuck is so funny? Nothing. Not, oh, E, Mm-mm. can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, man. How much y'all fucking laughing? <laughs> nah, hey, e. You good. Just hit that first beat hard. Man, you got to come in on beat. Cruising down the street. You cruising. You good, All right. Hey. No, 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 no. You good, you good, you good. It's dope. A couple of other films have already charted the territory of musical internship. For instance, in Milos Forman's multi-Oscar-winning adaptation of Peter Schaeffer's Tony Award-winning play Amadeus, Mozart is taken ill and summons Salieri in assisting him to write a requiem. When I say assist, I really mean take dictation. 
and it is through dictating the music that the audience gains an insight into the depth of Mozart's genius. He heard over 40 instruments in his head at the same time, each one in perfect harmony with the other, and together they provided an explanation as to how the prodigy heard the world. Now for the real fire. Strings in unison. Ostinato on A, like this. X measures rising. James Mangle's biopic Walk the Line did something similar when a very young Johnny Cash was struggling not just to find his voice but a reason to sing. He was hit by a truck and you were lying out in that gutter dying and you had time to sing one song. Huh? One song people would remember before your dirt. One song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up. You telling me that's the song you'd sing. That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're gonna shout it. Or would you sing something different? Something real, something you felt because I'm telling you right now, that's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. Through Dr. Dre's coaching and perseverance, Easy e eventually gets it right, and N.W.A., their first hit single. Yet, despite securing recognition amongst their peers, they are treated with suspicion and contempt by the authorities, by which I mean the police and media. One afternoon, the band are outside the recording studio taking a break when suddenly, and without warning, they are harassed and humiliated by the police, who force them down on the sidewalk while they are being frisked. The experience compels them not to fight back, but to write back, composing the song that becomes the band's anthem. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground A young nigga got it bad cause I'm brown And not the other colour so police think They have the authority to kill a minority Fuck that shit cause I ain't the one For a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be Which brings me back to the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. Just like they did Spike Lee's movie, the predominantly white media criticised NWA's music, claiming it would incite hatred and violence. But again, that complaint was pointing the finger in the wrong direction. There can be no denying it now that a lot of NWA's lyrics are poetry, expressing the suffering, anger, fear, fatigue and anxiety of black communities right across the country. Visceral, emotive and reactive, it emanated from a place of pain, from years, decades of neglect, abuse and culturally codified prejudice. So when the film takes them to the stage in Detroit, Michigan, the scene is set for a showdown between artists who are holding up a mirror to white power and the white-run police force who are intent on beating and silencing the freedom of expression that is the right of every citizen in an open society. Of course, the injustice of which N.W.A. sang in 1989 was only amplified and extended into tragedy when, in the summer of 2015, the film was released. By that time, Straight Outta Compton was no longer a biopic, nor was it a timepiece about great American artists. It was a news report straight out of Ferguson, Missouri. 
Time had proven Ice Cube, MC Ren and Easy es lyrics to be an atomic prophecy, a foretelling of when power is corrupted. And so, instead of protecting and serving the weak, the vulnerable and the marginalised, it turns against them with fierce brutality. The next podcast will look at scenes in which atomic weight expands cinematically. 